0: Hello and welcome to Stuff That Interests Me, with me, Dominic Frisby. And today, it's my pleasure to welcome to the show the author of this book, Radicals, Outsiders Changing the World. That man is Jamie Bartlett. He's also the presenter of the BBC Two show Secrets of Silicon Valley. Jamie, welcome to the show. Pleasure to have you on. We meet at last. Um, I want to start with with an essay you wrote the other day, and it was about... The obsession that the British currently have with Brexit, and how you equated that to uh, 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 Henry VIII and everyone getting their knickers in a twist about Henry VIII and the separation with the Catholic Church. Meanwhile, the printing press has been invented. So, why don't we start with
1: that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I understand why, of course, we're slightly obsessing over Brexit. It's a really big deal for all of us, but. I was just writing this essay thinking about how there were much bigger things going on in the world than our separation with Europe, and I studied uh, Reformation history. Oh, did you? I did, so immediately I thought, wait a minute, this has happened before. We broke from Europe once before, hundreds of years ago, and it just so happens that around that time there was this revolutionary new way of uh, communicating. The the printing press, of course, Gutenberg's printing press being invented, which completely dwarfed the impact of the break with Rome. But no one at the time realized that. Everyone was obsessing over our kind of uh, our, our domestic politics and what it meant. Meanwhile, the entire kind of the, the, the entire way in which societies were being ordered was about to be transformed and no one saw it coming. And that is what's happening today. With the not just the digital revolution and with what big data's doing to us, but what artificial intelligence and automation is going to do to our economies and societies. And while we obsess over Brexit, I think we are missing a much more fundamental change in our economies. And if we're not careful and not preparing for that, uh, it's going to create turbulence on a scale we probably haven't seen since the Reformation.
0: There are so many parallels between the internet and Gutenberg's printing press. And one of the parallels that often gets missed is the fact that money itself is tech. And prior to the printing press, we always used used gold and silver coins. And with the invention of printing press, suddenly that gave rise to the emergence of paper money, which changed money. And of course, the the printing press changed the way that religion and and changed media, it changed the way that information is spread, all these different um, effects that it had, and liberalising effects. And, um, And of course, the Protestant church is a bit more liberal than the Catholic church is. So everything liberal, (laughs) liberal, liberal. And yet many people today who are so-called liberals are resistant to the idea of Brexit. And I don't know which which way you voted, and I'm not casting any aspersions on you, but should should we talk about that for a moment, the the resistance of the so-called liberal establishment to these liberalising
1: forces? Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually, because it it has surprised me that there was... There seemed to be two streams of thinking on on Brexit and there was one which was really this is about immigration and this is about taking back control of our borders because we don't like the influx of people. But then there was another I think slightly more philosophical view on this which was this is about individual liberty, it's about countries having control it's about sovereign nation states being in control of their futures and how important fundamentally that is to all of us. And I mean, I think the two of them together worked to basically push the Brexit vote over the line. Neither side could have won it alone. But it has surprised me that there has there, there was sort of less of a, a sort of sustained liberal argument for Brexit, uh, not just for... The principle of sovereignty at the lowest level possible, and things like that. But I think more broadly about the technological changes that are coming, and the sort of the, yeah the, res- the resistance, I suppose, in liberal fringes towards things like Bitcoin or other technologies that are inherently quite liberalising. I mean, there are some problems with them. And don't get me wrong, because just a few. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, and 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 you know, part of it is is the, is the extent to which they are at times utterly uncontrollable. Uh, And so some of the technologies that are coming down the line and cryptocurrencies, one of your great interests, of course, is one of them. And I can understand why some liberals would say, well, the problem is while it's liberalizing for an individual, it's going to seriously damage the ability of the collective to be able to control it in a way that the collective wants. So in some senses, it's very liberal, but it's not necessarily very democratic, because it's outside the control of individuals. And a lot of liberals at heart, first and foremost, are Democrats. And what I think might be happening is that liberalism and democracy might be kind of pulling in opposite directions now, because democracy in the end is not just about liberty of the individual. It's also about control. It's about enforcing a majority view on everybody. And a lot of Hardline techie liberals think that democracy doesn't defend your liberty at all. In fact, it's the opposite. So I wonder whether there's an interesting fault line emerging in liberalism now about technology between those who are truly liberals and those who are more Democrats. And I think for many years, we've kind of obscured that distinction, but it might pull apart. Yeah, because liberals
0: traditionally have been the ones associated with freedom. In fact, the word liberal actually means freedom. And liberalism tends to be associated with the left. But if anything, the left is becoming more authoritarian and the right is associated with with so-called libertarianism, even though the definition left and right is Mm. slightly outdated anyway.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, But this is the thing. I mean, I think technology in a sense and, and how the left and the right view technology and the extent to which they view it as a liberating force or an uncontrollable... Undemocratic force, I think, is is forcing us to tease that difference apart. And I think in the in the years to come, more than anything, some of the big dividing lines between left and right will be about their approach to technology. Uh, now, you know, at the moment, it's something that people aren't really sure about. It's kind of confusing. But I'm I'm, I'm absolutely certain that in the next decade or so, questions like what do we do about artificial intelligence and How do we regulate it? How do we control it? How do we tax it? Uh, Do we let it run free or do we try to impose some form of democratic control over it? This could be the big dividing line in politics. And I think that question or that sort of collection of questions will be discussed as angrily, as vigorously as the NHS or immigration is today. At the moment, no one really thinks about it much, but that is all about to change.
0: So let's talk about some of the... The technological changes that that we're not preparing for and should be. What what are the what are the what are what are the what is today's Gutenberg's printing press implications?
1: Well, that is obviously hard to say for sure, and no doubt things will change. But what has been remarkable is the way that artificial intelligence has moved from this tiny little sci-fi. Uh, sort of Hollywood obsession to something that ordinary people are actually talking about. Everywhere I go, everybody now wants to talk about artificial intelligence and what's it going to mean for our jobs. No one really understands what that word even means, artificial intelligence. Now to me, we have, we have been misled by Hollywood into believing that artificial intelligence is about in sort of sentient robots walking around doing everything that humans do. That is not what it's really about. Artificial intelligence essentially is about teaching machines to replicate the behaviour of humans and decision-making of humans uh, through lots of examples, lots of data. Now, that doesn't mean that there's going to be sentient robots, but it's going to mean in lots of different bits of industry artificial intelligence algorithms will be able to do certain things better than, or at least as well as, humans at lower cost. And I'm not so much worried about this singularity moment where the whole world is taken over by robots, but I think what might happen is that we see a quite dramatic restructuring of our economy, whereby a small number of companies that are very good at big data and artificial intelligence suddenly find themselves as leaders in almost every single industry. Google can be remarkably good in logistics, planning, factory uh, factory processes, driving, health research, as well as its traditional business models. And so suddenly you're talking about very, very large monopolies with potentially a small number of brilliant jobs at the top, but a bit of a withering away in the middle. And that's the thing that I think governments and society need to think about, and that's maybe why some liberal people are nervous because the liberal left would worry that that might result in a, an unsustainable level of inequality. So they're the things that are sort of focusing my mind, and that's why that's why I think artificial intelligence is so important because people don't really understand it or what it's going to do, and they imagine it to be this—it's like it's going ridiculous about wars with robots, which is nonsense.
0: Mm. It's very hard to prepare for something that you don't understand. Now, the Bank of England has estimated, I think, fifteen million jobs or something hmm. are, are, are going to go as a result of robotics and yeah. AI and all these technological changes. And now I'm looking at my um, Gmail app on my phone, and it's it, when I get a rep, uh, when I want to reply to an email, it gives me options of things that I can reply with. And already the options it's giving me as quick responses to emails received are better than the options that i would write myself and i'm a writer (laughs) now how long and no sarky remarks here please but how long before artificial intelligence is writing better films and better books jobs that you would think could never be displaced and i don't think that time is that far away
1: no neither do I. i and i think we're fooling ourselves in saying these lazy platitudes like human, human creativity, a robot could never do that. Rubbish! Of course it could. I think we overestimate ourselves and underestimate the power of algorithms when we say such mm. stuff. Uh, it's not far away at all before... I mean, we've already seen music being beautifully written and performed by machines. There are some screenplays and some movies that have been uh, written by um, uh, machine learning algorithms. And so the thing about all of these things is is the speed with which they can improve because it's all based on more evidence, more data being put into the algorithm to learn from. And we are creating exponentially more data every year. I mean, I think something like the amount of data we produce doubles every couple of years. So the speed of improvement is quickening as well. So I think some of these things, like for example, machine learning algorithms beating the world's best Go player, happened at least five or ten years earlier than anyone even in the field predicted. So it is going to happen sooner than we think, and it's going to create all sorts of interesting and difficult questions Is it going for to create
0: us. more jobs, like the industri- machines in the Industrial Revolution, or are we going to lose jobs? Certainly there's going to be disruption, because the net... Are we going to the the Keynesian dream of of having to work less or are we just going to sit
1: there and be unemployed? I think that um, uh, the the reason a lot of people are seriously talking about universal basic income, Mm -hmm. for example, is because there's, a I think, a general consensus that there will probably be fewer jobs now, some of the speculation that there'll be no jobs and we'll all be sitting around twiddling our thumbs, I think, is is a bit ludicrous. Um, and it's very hard to say. I mean, who could ever have imagined that an app developer would be a job? So I can't even think of mm. the sorts of jobs we'll come up with. But I, But I'm, in a sense, more worried about whether those jobs are going to be in the same places. Or the people that lose their jobs, will they be able to retrain for new jobs? Will we see just this suddenly huge numbers of people that can't find work because the whole industry's been decimated. And we people always say, well, the Industrial Revolution created more jobs. Yeah, but only after 50 or 70 years of, you know, unbelievable turmoil, falling life expectancy, 12-year-olds working down mines and all the other political turbulence that came with that. So, in a sense, to me, whether we lose some jobs or gain some jobs... I think there's something more important about how the whole economy might restructure and, and all the side effects that that will create. And I didn't mention the other big technology, your, your kind of pet interest of decentralised blockchain-based applications because I think we are about to enter into a, an era where censorship, government censorship, is basically finished. They, they can't control information anymore. You can, we had a big story today about whether or not terrorist material was being removed quickly from the internet. Mm-hmm. The big tech firms are being told, you've got to do more. Fine, they could probably do more because they have centralised servers where they can remove content. But in a decade or so, I think there'll be a lot more blockchain-based net, uh, social networks and other hosting services where nobody can remove the material. It's not possible. What happens when we live in a world where censorship of, Im- of material or information is over? Yeah,
0: I think you're absolutely right, Jamie. A lot of people, on the, on the, particularly on the right, are complaining that the left is demanding greater censorship and that they're the ones being censored. And so you're seeing channels being shut down on YouTube and everything else. And my argument to that is... There is nothing to worry about because we are. It, it, the sooner that there is censorship on YouTube or on Facebook, then we will move to de- decentralized versions of Facebook and YouTube, yeah. and and then that particular problem is solved. So the irony is that in trying to clamp down on something, uh, they're speeding up the process of the alternate adoption. The same thing happened actually with robots. Um, the 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 greater. Um, protection there is for the worker the quicker companies are replacing the worker with robot alternatives.
1: Yeah yeah and I think and I think we are seeing it and I I think it was it was the it was the Snowden revelations to me that gave this whole thing a really big kick because all of a sudden there's revelations of all of this either censorship or monitoring resulted in an enormous wave of activists starting to build new networks and systems that they thought could circumnavigate censorship or monitoring by the authorities. And it was the same in the early 90s. A lot of our modern encryption technology was all built in the early 90s by activists who were worried that the FBI was clamping down on cyberspace, as it was called back in those days. And I think we're seeing the same thing again. So, but the, these things are, are exciting, and they're especially exciting if you're liberally minded. But uh, you know, they're also a little scary because it's a kind of unknown world, and it's a it's a it's a world in which control, which is a safety blanket for all of us, is kind of slipping through our fingers, and, and that that is frightening. But then the cost of of liberty is is a little bit of. Is a little bit of risk and a little bit of fear, isn't it? Now it's no
0: surprise that, with all these currents going on, we are seeing the rise of radicals. So why don't we, why don't you give us describe your book to us for for a couple of minutes?
1: Yeah. So I, I mean, I work at a political think tank, and, and 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 you know, and I've watched over the last ten years as confidence and trust in mainstream political parties and institutions has just been on this downward curve. And it was quite clear to me three or four years ago that there was great appetite out there for anybody almost who would come forward as an outsider with new ideas about how politics should be done. I didn't know what they were exactly, but I knew that, that something was going to give because confidence and trust was so low in the way we were doing politics and new technology had made it so much easier for newcomers to create movements that it was obvious we, the whole system was about to sort of go into a... Moment of flux, and that's what happened in 2016. And, and I started writing it in 2015, so it was a very confusing. Mm-hmm. Happened too early, if you like, for yeah. me. I, if it happened a year later, I'd have been fe- fated as this great visionary. So, um... <laughs> well, you were a visionary in, in writing the book in the first place, <laughs> right, and yeah. you
0: are. I mean, let me just say this: it sounds like I'm, I'm being sycophantic, and I am a bit.
1: But you are ahead of the curve, <laughs> Darknet you know, nailed it, and radicals who nailed it as well. Right. But on, anyway, carry on. Well, thank you. But the, so, so, so it was clear to me that something big was happening, and, and equally looking through history, it was, it was obvious that the new ideas of how politics are done always come from people that the mainstream denigrates as being extremists or radicals. It's always been that way historically. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, I'll look to the fringes now and see what movements and trends and currents there are Because I think it's going to be some of those that will help shape the politics of tomorrow. And I wanted to try to understand what they would be. So rather than the clapped out traditional approach to extremism, which is let's look at Muslims and let's look at the far right. I thought there's so much more going on than that. There's so many different currents of thought. So I really tried to cast the net quite widely and look at radical libertarians and futurists, uh, psychedelics, pioneers and you know, free love active. I mean, all sorts of different movements that are, at the moment, I think, represent very interesting and potentially very exciting new ways of thinking about politics. Which is the most likely to prevail? I think it depends on your time frame. So I think in the next five years, believe it or not, culturally, psychedelics movements will be as important as they were in the late 1960s with the Summer of Love and Timothy Leary. A lot of this is cyclical, you know, how Mm -hmm. politics works. Ten years, I think radical environmentalists will be as much of a preoccupation for the authorities as radical Islamists are today. Even though they're quite different and they're not violent in the same way and they don't try to kill innocent people like radical Islamists do or radical white supremacists, But I think there will be a a great hardening and a great militancy of radical environmentalists. 20 years down the line, though, I think we're now talking about the people that try to imagine beyond the nation state and look at what models might replace a nation state. And the people that are thinking about, like the transhumanists, what do we do about life extension technology if we can all live to 200? What do we do about artificial intelligence if it does mean robotics uh, will take over so much of our economies? What's our policy on all of that? So that's how I think about it. There's some short-term uh, sort of immediate stuff. And along with the psychedelics movements, I think there is going to be uh, an unstoppable demand for more direct democracy using the internet. And that has good and bad things attached to it. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at these over sort of different time frames. I was rather hoping, and I'm getting messages in
0: my ear telling me that we we're at 20 minutes and we're overrunning. Really? I'm just going to do one last question. You can cut some of that out. <laughs> no, I'm not cutting, a, not cutting a word of it out. Um, I was rather hoping you'd say that the libertarian kind of freedom movement will win. Doesn't, you're not convinced about that?
1: Um, I, think over, I think over the 20-year period, like I said, I mean I think that, that the future is very, very good for libertarians. And I say that in the book. So maybe not immediately, because a lot of the technology that we've we've talked about already does take quite a long time for mass adoption. But over the long term, I think of all the different movements I looked at in this book, none were more optimistic than radical libertarians. Because I think the technology that we have built ultimately helps promote the cause of individual freedom. I think nation states are getting weaker and weaker, and I think that's going to be that's going to be speeded up dramatically, both by the mass movement of people, so borders are going to become harder to control, and by the bigger uh, adoption of things like Bitcoin, and by the inability to tax and spend, thanks partly to artificial intelligence and how that's going to change the shape of the economy, means that nation-states are going to get weaker and weaker. And in its place, I think we will start seeing ideas that are libertarian in spirit. So can we create virtual nations? Can we create new models of sort of city-states and things which are slightly smaller in scale uh, and which prioritise individual freedom? And that's partly because I think attitudes sort of demographically will change because so many young people now have been brought up with smartphone and other internet-based technology, which is all about individual freedom. It's all about... No one should tell you what you can see or can't see. You should have control over whatever you want to see and be and behave. And that is all sort of, I think, slowly going to, like, and gradually going to change what politics means to people. And that might be sort of 10 or 20 years' time because that's a demographic shift as older people disappear and young people brought up with this technology make up more of the electorate. I think what is seen to be normal politically more and more is going to be libertarian in, in instinct. Jamie Bartlett, an epic interview. And if you want to read Jamie's book, here
0: it is. It's called Radicals. And if you want to follow Jamie on Twitter, he is at Jamie Bartlett and you should follow him and you should also all all read Jamie wrote an uh, an essay recently on E.ON all about city-states and it's a fantastic interview so you should all read that Jamie Bartlett, thank you very much I do hope we can get you on the show again soon what an interesting guy, 25 minutes just flown by (laughs) thank you very much and uh, I'll be back with more stuff that interests me very soon thank you for watching Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, If you like the interview, please share it with a friend. And more importantly, please give us a nice rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you.